Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. My name is Ayla Cuenca. I am a birth doula, childbirth educator, uh, mother. I support women in alchemizing their birth trauma and basically turning what feels like burden, um, challenge into gold. I really love supporting women and doing that. It's possible. I mean, women are alchemists uh, by nature, right? That's what the womb is. It's just a, a chamber and a matrix of alchemy. And so we have the capacity to do that for ourselves. So nothing is ever really set in stone. It's always changing and it's always an opportunity. Um, this is also what women do in partnership, right? So, uh, you know, in a marriage or in a relationship, um, women can support that for their partners. They can amplify the gift of their partner simply because of their alchemy. Um, so it's really, it's really an incredible um, thing that I get to do is to support and witness women in that alchemy and that process. I love that. Um, and ever since I was a little girl, I always like, you know, I'm, I'm by nature very um, social, like I'm an introvert, but then when I get into a certain setting, I can make friends wherever I go. Like it does not matter what country I'm in, what setting I'm in, like it doesn't matter. And um, ever since I was little, people always said, wow, that was really good advice. Like, oh, wow, I, I didn't see it that way, you know? And so I always felt like, okay, like I can just kind of come in here and shake things up and like people see things differently. And like, this is really fun, you know? And I just, <laughs> I always love that. I mean, I remember there's a video clip of me in like the early nineties and I did gymnastics, my siblings and I all did gymnastics and we compete, competed um, pretty consistently. You know, it was a, it was a competitive um sport for us, for the whole family. And we were part of this Russian gym in Southern California. And I remember I was doing this exercise and there was this little boy who always had a challenge going off of this like kind of second level and jumping in, like flipping and jumping in. And I remember watching him and thinking like, he's just got to break through that barrier. Like he's just got to break through. And like, he just needs someone to show him like, it's going to be okay once he gets to the other side. And I remember there's a video of me running up there and like grabbing him by the face and saying, nothing bad is going to happen to you. I promise. Let's go. And I grabbed his arm and like yanked him in with me. And like afterwards, he started like doing the exercise and like running, going to the second level and jumping. And he like unlocked something there. And so I always recount that moment and like remember that clip that my parents and I remember my parents were like, you shouldn't have done that. Like, you know, people do things in their own time. And I was like, 
yeah, and sometimes you just need the push, you know, like, and so it's always been in my nature, um, you know, to see an opportunity for someone to expand and to just uh, walk by their side as they do that, you know. Um, <laughs> and so now I see that in my work here, <laughs> um, you know, and I would say like my, my, my biggest example of alchemy, like in my, in my own life, um, where I could really witness it as like a, an observer was actually when I went through my divorce, um, you know, my whole, my whole world shifted, uh, when, when, when that happened in every regard. I mean, spiritually, energetically, financially, like concept of home, concept of roots. Um, I was really forced to look at my nature as a codependent human being and really like what that meant and how I had, um, you know, been making decisions my whole life based off of traumatic events, right? Like my traumatic events in childhood that had not been resolved were really propelling me into the way that I related not only with, in partnership, but also with female friendships and in work. And um, I really, I really took that opportunity to confront, you know, what I would call the monster in the closet. And um, and when I did, I didn't find a monster. I, I just found myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's you. <laughs> oh, like you, me, we, we have the capacity to change this. How do I provide all of the safety? all of the nurturing, like mommy's not coming home, daddy's not coming home, so who is? Oh, it's me. And so as I started to reparent myself, um, I found this like world of freedom that I had never felt before. And so what do we want as human beings? We want freedom. That's like, I mean, if people were to say like, <laughs> we, we get ultimatums between something really, really tempting and freedom, I pretty sure people would always choose freedom, right? So that's what we want. We want to feel free in this existence because we feel so confined um, by so many things. And so when I was able to really um, reconnect with my parts that had felt like abandoned, not consoled, um, you know, I was able to access a lot of freedom and I was able to actually serve the women that I serve, my clients, my daughter, my friendships, my relationships, um, from a different place, like a more whole place. Um, and so I would say that was my big awakening, you know, in my Jesus year, right? It's 33. So that's when it happens. <laughs> they call it the Jesus year for a reason, I guess. And, um, and yeah, since then, it's been really like, so much more presence on a day to day basis, right? Like, the capacity to regulate my own system, the capacity to hold my own container, you know, and to feel that my cup is filled and that I get to fill it whenever I want. And there is nothing outside of me um, that does that. Whereas, you know, coming from a belief where I could only get that fulfillment and the wholeness uh, from others. Uh, and even then you're always left feeling empty because it's not a true way to fill your cup, right? So... Yeah, I'd say that was my big uh, moment of alchemy. And since then, it's just been a bunch of uh, mini alchemy sessions because <laughs> it doesn't stop. It's not like it, the work ends, but the work becomes pleasurable and more fulfilling and, and that's, true. That's the perfect segue because I would say my biggest alchemy has been not conceiving for 10 years. That's where I faced my monsters in the closet. 
that's where I face my demons is what I call it. My demons of control, my demons Mm. of control, trying to get this safety outside of myself. That's what we're going to talk on today because you're a person that I really respect that can go really deep in, in wow, like victim consciousness in unresolved trauma and how that shows up in life. And so we're going to talk about other routes to fertility issues beyond just mm, my body, which, which could be the case sometimes, but a lot of, a lot of the times it's so much bigger than that. What your divorce gave you of freedom is what not conceiving gave me. I found myself through it. And it's a story of alchemy because I was a victim in the first year or two. And then I decided like, I, I don't actually want this. I don't, I don't want to live my life like this. My, my alchemy journey has been not conceiving and I just, I'm very biased in this conversation because it is my life journey. And I love being biased about it because right. I can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so much of our good girl conditioning is to stay in the middle and to just not disturb, disrupt. And so that actually stunts our, our expression. That creates physical issues and you know chronic illness when we stay in this place of not expressing. And so I would say, yeah, be biased because it's in your expression and it's your truth. So yeah, I'm speaking from my lived experience and I know you work with women. So that's why I wanted you on is what you see with women. And what I want to address is the pain and suffering of not conceiving. There's many parts to it, but it's this pain of not getting what you want when you want it and pain of life looking differently (laughs) than what you imagined. And so it's this big adult tantrum in a way of not getting what you want, not getting what you desire. And two-year-olds deal with that on the daily, right? You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. not watching as much TV as they want and they tantrum because they're not getting what they want. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have an underdeveloped brain. That's, <laughs> that's healthy for them. That's normal. But for adults, if we haven't learned to mother ourselves and learn to sit in our discomfort and pain with ourselves, oh my gosh, we will search everywhere and anything to get rid of that pain and suffering. Sure. I mean, the thing about a two-year-old is that they don't have self-regulation techniques. Like they don't know how to self-regulate. And I would actually argue that most adults don't know how to self-regulate, which is why people vape, which is why people watch porn, which is why people, you know, as soon as they feel something, they'll call up a girlfriend. It's like, I need to offload this out of my body because I do not know how to hold it in my body because I don't have the capacity to self-regulate. So I don't think adults actually like developed anything differently than the two-year-old. They've just found ways to offload it. Um, And so this not getting what I want, it's like, yeah, a child is like, I really wanted that thing and I'm not getting it. So I'm going to cry because I don't know what to do. So adults have figured out these strategies to numb the pain of not getting what they want and also to offload it or to victimize and blame someone else. Um, So I don't know that we've gotten any better. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is why I created the containment course, um, basically learning how to hold space for yourself so you can hold space for others, right? And this is about surrender. It is about understanding that um, regardless of what's happening around you, there is still safety in your body. And this is a concept that a lot of people can't even grok because it's like, oh, no, I am safe. Like, I'm in my house. But when you are met up with something that really doesn't feel good, your body feels like it's in fight or flight. I mean, that like, you know, say you see something that you didn't expect, right? Uh, your partner says something that, you know, dysregulates you. It's like you feel the heat in your body. You feel it move up your arms, up your legs. You feel the pit in your solar plexus. You feel the constriction in your throat. When you learn how to offload that in a healthy way without lashing back at your partner, without calling up your girlfriend, without hitting the vape, without whatever it is, getting your phone out, that's freedom. That's actually freedom. That's true control, in air quotes, over your body and your, and your experience and your situation. Yeah, exactly. But it takes practice. Exactly, exactly. So it's this learning how to mother yourself. And a lot of us are in that wounded maiden that lashes out, um, that is victim, that seeks external validation and logic and tell me what to do and seeks permission outside of yourself. And yeah, it's just this wounded maiden part of ourselves that we haven't, you know, faced. That's the kind of the demon in the closet. We haven't sat with that little girl in us that you know, from our past. And then, so it's this journey of mothering yourself and, oh my gosh, like coming home to your body, your nervous system. Like this conversation's huge. But the other part of it that I want to just talk with you is, can we also explore that the pain can be for our, our expansion? Yeah. I mean, I've been saying this for years now and it seems like might be catching on. I don't know. <laughs> is that your capacity to hold pain is completely equal to your capacity to hold pleasure, right? And so, you know, when a woman is like, oh, you know, I'm just kind of like faking it in bed, like sometimes it feels good and, you know, I kind of have to perform in bed. I have to kind of like go into my mind to really like feel the pleasure when I'm with my partner in this intimate setting. And I'm thinking like, whoa, like really, you know, there's no capacity to receive and there's no capacity to hold that pleasure, experience that pleasure. So as we start, and I ask these questions when I work with women one-on-one, -on -one, cause I kind of want to get a sense of where their capacity is for things, not because, you know, there's anything specific about, you know, being intimate in bed, but it's a, it's a marker of how a woman can receive or not receive. So it gives me info. And so then we talk about, you know, well, okay, so you 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 elected to have an epidural, right? And she's like, oh, I can't feel any pain. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm starting to understand the web of her experience. It's like no capacity for pain, no capacity for pleasure, right? And she's like, oh, I avoid conflict. I ghost. I'm like, okay, no capacity for the conflict, which is also emotionally painful. So I'm starting to understand that she does not have the nervous system capacity for anything in either other either direction. OK, and that has to do with a lot of, you know, experiences that we have growing up. You know, I'd say that's one of the biggest one of the, the main players in why a woman is unable to receive pain or pleasure um, is because there's been a lot of information given to her throughout childhood where it wasn't safe to receive. Right. 
even something so small as like a little girl at the store with her mom, you know, and she's like, mommy, I found M&Ms. And it's like, put those away. We don't have money for that. You can't eat that. Okay. Something that I, I got excited about that gives me some pleasure um, is not okay, right? That's just a minor example that people think, oh, who remembers that? No, no, kids remember that. Something that I want that might make me feel good is cut off. Or, you know, the other extreme of like, you know, something that's only supposed to feel good, like my, you know, touch from my mom or my dad that's only supposed to feel nurturing and good, I actually got, you know, hit a lot, you know, verbally abused. The voice was like knives in my system. The touch was, uh, you know, slapping or hitting or whipping. So the body that's only, you know, supposed to feel safe touch from that person, loving touch is actually experiencing a lot of pain and discomfort. So that shuts off her capacity to receive anything. So there are a lot of things that can happen in our formative years that set us up to <laughs> need to check out in adulthood, right? It's just not an option. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to feel pleasure, right? And then that leads us down the road of, you know, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety, pharmaceuticals, and, you know, needing to stay in the middle, right? Not, it can go into any sensation. Yeah, a lot of people might deny if they're not ready to be radically honest with themselves because that's just a whole other level. They might be like, no, no, I, I love pleasure. I can take in pleasure, but it's, I think it's from Carolyn Elliott, Existential Kink, where she says, pay attention to when you're having a really good day, when you're in a really good mood, when something amazing happened to you. How long do you allow that to last? How long can your good mood stay intact? <laughs> until your mind sabotages it and then you start overthinking a dynamic with your husband and then you sabotage your own pleasure you you hit this ceiling of pleasure of feeling good and you have to bring yourself back down yeah so actually carolyn um i read her book about six years ago when i started my journey into bdsm um which people don't know what that is. Um, it's just the exploration of dominant and submissive dynamics, um, bondage and submission, things like that. And, um, you know, I'm, I was really interested in the, the, the energetics and the psychological um, kind of like underpinnings of this practice uh, because I was really committed to expanding my capacity. And so when I encountered the possibility that I, you know, was unconsciously creating situations for myself to be constrained, right? Because what she talks about in this book is that we actually co-create, right? There's destiny, which I totally believe in. Um, there's destiny, but then there's also the co-creation. There's free will, which we have as human beings. That's what sets us apart, I guess, from animals, um, arguably. Um, and what sets, sets us apart from animals is that we have a spiritual quest. That's really the only difference. And so, you know, as I was exploring this book and I was thinking, oh, could I be co-creating these unsavory situations because I like the feeling of being constrained. I like the feeling of the challenge. I like the delicious sensation of being a victim. It gives me an identity. And so I was like, okay, like, let me look into that more. This was when I was having this, you know, um, awakening or this, this big alchemical process that I was in. And then I also started exploring, can I really hold the pleasure? If I get something good, can I really hold it? Right. And then I, you know, I would do these pleasure practices, um, with my BDSM coach and 
it was like, okay, how long can you lie there, sit there? And how long can you, you know, do this touch on your hand that feels really good? And I was like, okay. And I timed myself. I couldn't sit there for more than five minutes doing this thing on my hand that felt really good. Cause I'd be like, okay, well, like, you know, you have other things to do. You should be working. You should be doing this. You, who, who are you in this world to take time at 2 PM in the middle of the day when everyone else has to work and survive to just sit around and brush your hair? Cause it feels good. What, what is this? Right? So I had this inner punisher that would come online every time that I would start to do something that felt good. And it would be like time to stop. And so it took, it took some time for me to get to a place where I was like, no, no, no. Like I'm going to expand my capacity for something to feel good. And I'm going to expand it and expand it until I feel satisfied, you know? And what that did was it actually, when I would work and when I work now and when I'm with a client, it actually feels good to me because I now set myself up to do it in a way that feels good. So I, I, um, I basically disabused work from this um, belief that work is not pleasurable. And so now my work is pleasurable because everything I do is, even when I'm in these sensations of challenge, I start to find the pleasure in it, right? And I start to see like, oh, okay, this is part of my expansion. This is actually part of my growth. Oh, I have to do this task, but I'm going to do it in a way that feels good. Oh, okay, I'm going to put like a hair mask on and I'm going to put on slippers and I'm going to put on my favorite music so that when I'm in this task that otherwise feels like burdensome, I'm going to make it work for me. So it's very alchemical to get into this place of, of really seeing where we're co-creating these kinks, right? these constraints, these challenges, and then getting to a place where we actually use them to expand our capacity for pleasure, where we start to, um, my coach would call it pendulation, where you go between something that feels uncomfortable and something that feels good. And you kind of go back and forth and back and forth until they become one thing. And in that practice, I was able to start living my life that way, you know? But I think, yeah, most of the women I know they have a ceiling for how long and how much they can feel good. And then they either sabotage it or they just put an end to it. I do want to talk about the kink that I discovered with not conceiving. Uh, it's so yeah. good. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And totally. Let's do it. The pain of not conceiving that I was calling pain or suffering that actually was pleasure in my body was mm -hmm. just simply the, my story. My story is so unique of not conceiving for 10 years. And I'm so unique. I am so different <laughs> than everyone else. And mm. I am so different in my suffering because my dad died tragically at age 12. And at that time, we had this mm. huge community that circled around us and the spotlight was on me because of my suffering. Mm. And I, and I, and that created this, um, this like ego identity of I'm special in my suffering. And I get mm -hmm. this, I get this like attention. Um, and yeah, so it's just this, this uniqueness. Like I get off on this, my, my story is so special and unique. And 
Right. I just own it. Like I own it. It's it's being honest and yeah. It's it's not about oh that's bad or that's shameful. It's about being honest with myself like yeah, it is a unique story and I'm so proud of it, but also it gives me pleasure to have such a unique story. It gives me pleasure to have such a different story than normal people because my ego identity is that I'm unique. And so that's a huge kink story with um, not conceiving. And then the two-week wait is a huge topic in the conception world. The two-week wait. In period apps, it's T-W-W and it's, you know, who else is in their two-week wait buddy? Like, I need a buddy in my two-week wait. And it's this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Because it's so hard. It's so hard for the human ego to wait two weeks or less or more to find out if you're pregnant. And so for months, right, for years, it's, oh, my gosh. I've dealt with a two-week wait for 10 years. So I have this story of the two-week wait is so hard, so hard. I don't know. I'm in the mystery. I'm in the unknown. And what is harder than the unknown for the ego? Nothing. The unknown and mystery is so hard. So I would complain about how hard it is. And then I did kink work on this, on radical Mm. honesty. How am I actually benefiting from this two-week wait? Mm -hmm. I was the most honest I've ever been with myself. And when you have that level of honesty, it gives you freedom. So this honesty I had with myself was that the two-week wait, I have the most hope I've ever had in the month. The two-week wait is where the thrill of hope lies and it's Mm -hmm. magical and it's beautiful and it's sensational and it's amazing and so I stopped this victimhood narrative of the two-week wait is so hard to it is so sensational and every day it's like if I feel like a little zing in my uterus oh my god there's hope oh my god there's hope it's so sensational Mm. and Mm -hmm. I was able Mm -hmm. to it's erotic it is, it is erotic. And now I, I just love it. I love it. And I'm, I'm in this, this pure honesty with myself of the two-week wait is so sensational, so full of hope. It's where it's the only time of the month that hope is alive. And so it's just this level of radical honesty. Yeah. And what that actually has done is it's served that inner girl, right? That part of you that splintered at 12 years old, you've given her an identity, like you've satiated her, you've made it okay for her to feel that way. And that's where these parts can rest because you've acknowledged what she needed. And you're like, it's okay. Like, I'm going to feed you this in a way where it's just out on the table we start to run into issues and conflict where we have these parts that are driving us, but we try to ignore them and suppress them. And we act like they're not there. Right. And that's who's in the driver's seat. And that's who makes these decisions. And that's where conflict comes. That's where chronic disease starts to form is where we don't, we act like it's not there. And so that's how you've integrated that part. Right. You're more whole, you're more, you're more integrated. Um, you know, I imagine these parts of us as women and in men too, men have parts as well. We, it's like every time an event occurred, that little part of us splintered. We have infinite parts. And I imagine them like these feral 
children. It's like a feral child that's rasping at the door. Like, give me what I need. Give me what I need. And we keep like holding the door closed. Like, ah, don't come in here because then I will have to confront some pain and I'll have to get radically honest with myself. But as soon as we open the door to her and we say, oh, that's what you wanted. Like, it did feel good to have people rally around you when you had this loss. And like, you know what? It's okay to still feel that way. And how can I, how can I satiate that for you in a way that's conscious? So that you stop rasping at the door and causing conflict in my life, <laughs> you know, and that's part of the work, but it's hard to take accountability. I mean, this is a very, you know, big topic in the birth world, accountability, as you know. Ayla, I really want you to speak on the women you work with that come to you for help with conception. I want you just to speak on your experience so I've been working with women um, within the space of birth, birth preparation, conception, postpartum, like, you know, in this arc, in this portal, I've been working with women for about what, over 10 years. And what I've noticed is that my clients are always like a reflection of me, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's true all the time in general, but it's like where I am in my life um, and what I'm processing is always reflected back in the type of client. Like, you know, I would say currently, um, there's a lot of women who are coming through this portal of realizing they've been in self-betrayal for a long time. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in our, in our conversation that when I went through my separation, I was, I was made keenly aware of how I had been self-betraying for a long time you know, self-betraying in order to make it work, self-betraying in order to please someone else, self-betraying in order to get the things that I needed to secure my safety. And so when I started to disburden myself from that, I then started to get a lot of clients in my life who were in the midst of figuring out that they were in a process of self-betrayal and wanting to get out. And so it's like, I'm always presented with my own portal that I move through, that I alchemize, and then I suddenly start um, attracting women who are requiring, looking for guidance to move through that same portal. <laughs> so it's like really perfect. And this is like how I know that I'm aligned in what I'm doing. It's because I'm given, I'm given the opportunity to transform, and then I'm given another opportunity to kind of shed some light on it and and support women in their own process. So. I would say that's, you know, that's really been the, like the biggest, if I look back over the last 10 years, that's really the pattern that I see. And so I can't say like, I have a particular type of client, right? Or, you know, some doulas are like, oh, I, you know, I work with women who do home birth or I work, you know, whatever. It's like, I am just working with women who are reflecting back my energy and where I've been. Like, that's it. You know, so it's like, I don't know what it means when people say like full spectrum doula or like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know what all of these 3D terms are. I'm just like, oh, like, I'm, I'm an energetic match to support you in your process. Okay. Wow. So yeah, I want to, I want to get into those big energetics because you're dealing with unresolved trauma with a lot of women, you know, that's, that's a mm. lot of humans. That's like, <laughs> But how do you even explain like buzzwords are like unresolved trauma, but a lot of people are like, but what is it? Like they, they just like, they'll have their moment of the light bulb. But when you just mm -hmm. say, 
unresolved trauma can be preventing conception. <laughs> How do you explain that? So yeah, it's it is like one of those terms that I feel like at this point we're just like ignore it now because we're like, oh my god, I've heard it so many times, right? Like when people say stress management, it's like, what does that even mean? Like I don't, you know, meditation. Like what? Like it's just like you hear it so much, it doesn't mean anything anymore. And um, you know, when it comes to unresolved trauma, for me, like what that what that means is that something hasn't been integrated. We all have had experiences that left us reeling, left us confused, left us feeling some degree of abandonment, left us feeling some degree of betrayal at one point in our lives. The only difference between someone who's resolved their trauma or someone who's left it unresolved is have they integrated it. And I don't mean like, okay, you know, mom did X, Y, Z, and now I can tolerate her. Like I got to a point now where I can like sit with her at a Thanksgiving dinner and not fight. I'm I'm healed. <laughs> okay, that's just you like literally hanging on by a thread tolerating a human being. That is not an integration. So, true integration, what does that mean? That's where I invite women to to go into, you know, the process of true integration integration of something that's occurred to see the actual blessing in it, which is very triggering to people because as you know, it's so much easier to be like the world was against me. I was dealt a shitty hand. This doesn't, this is not okay for it to happen to anyone. And how can you say that there's any wisdom in this? How can you see that there's any benefit for me in this? Right? So when people are in that state of mind, I really can't help them. I mean, you know, be, be, stay in that if that's what's serving you. Um, but like, I'm here to say, like, I've experienced some things myself and I would not like be sitting here if I stayed in the story that, um, you know, I needed to continue to relive that to have an identity. Um, and it's not to say, you know, tragedy happens, right? death happens, you know, um, really severe crimes um, happen. And it all depends on your willingness to alchemize it or not. You have a choice. You have a, a fork in the road. So whatever feels more delicious to you, the victim story or alchemizing it and integrating and quote, resolving the trauma. You know, it's never going to make it go away. The event occurred. It's just how much has it been integrated into your identity or your existence? You know, is it something you keep separate? Is it something that defines you? Is it something that's driving you? Or is it something that now has become a part of you as a special ingredient in who you are today? Yeah. What about you have a popular reel on Instagram, I think, about your number one fertility tip, and it was resolving generational trauma. And so that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. It can be the same yeah, thing. Yeah. I but... mean, it can be the same because a woman will hold on to something that's happened in her lineage as part of her identity, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so, right, like great grandmother had a story, let's say, where in order to, you know, have a family and be married, she had to pay a price. Let's call it paying a price where, okay, to have this husband, to have the security, to, you know, have a roof over med, I have to pay a price. I have to, receiving abuse is the price I pay to have the things I want. So that story genetically, right, on a cellular level is passed down. It's also passed down through storytelling. It's also passed down through what her daughter witnesses. So then her daughter grows up thinking there is a price to pay to have love. 
right? And that's the story that goes down in the generations. So present day, you know, where did this come from? Why do I keep choosing these relationships where I know better, but the familiarity of having to pay a price to get love is just so, makes so much sense to me. So that's, that's some of the generational trauma I'm talking about when I say this. And so what happens when you're in that dynamic? Your body, your animal body doesn't feel safe. It's not a viable place to create new life. So that's what I mean when I say that generational trauma is blocking you from conception, easeful conception, because your animal body is like, no way. This is not working here. This is not where we get pregnant and raise a family. So when that woman can get real with herself and, you know, disabuse herself from that story that there is a price to pay to have love. There is a price I have to pay to have a family. I have to receive this type of treatment in order to be here. She has to heal that. And then her animal body can say, okay, let's find, you know, let's find a situation where we're safe, where we feel good, where we're not paying any price to be who we are. We're not paying any price for love. And unfortunately, most women, I mean, even men, but most women have that underlying story that there is a price to pay, right? My silence and not expressing myself to the part to my partner is a price I pay to be here and to stay connected to him. So what's the price you're paying? You know? Yeah, I I've been doing healing work for more than a decade, but I haven't dove into generational lineage stuff until a few months ago. And what came up there it was a plant medicine journey and it was life-changing because I sat in my grandmother's lineage line and mm. it was all about, no, I can't ask that of God. I can't ask that of my husband. I can't ask that of my friend. I can't ask blank. It's this, it's this inability to ask for what you need, small or big, even, even with God. And my baby soul daughter came in and was like, I have the audacity to ask for all the best things in my earth life and I'm going to get them. So I'm asking <laughs> for a home birth, like a, you know, unassisted home birth. She mm -hmm. has the audacity to ask for that and she's going to get it. She has the mm -hmm. audacity to ask for conscious parents mm -hmm. and conscious conception and mm -hmm. she's going to get it. And so she, she's coming in, like blowing this lineage line to pieces about, no, I can't ask that. And she's like, I have the audacity to ask. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's so many ways to access it. Like you accessed it through that channel. A woman could sit and even journal, right? Not journal. That's another term that's like, what does it even mean anymore? But really like going through uh, my friend, Daniela Garcia, she's called the Joy Alchemist. She has an incredible four-step process for, journal for journaling that gets you onto that like plant medicine level, right? If plant medicine is not your thing. And it's really powerful. I did her exercise and the next day I was out for the count. I was with a migraine and vomiting for 18 hours. Okay. And I was like, wow, <laughs> do not underestimate the power <laughs> of what I just released in here. And I was able to access information that otherwise people are like, oh, I don't talk to my mom. I've never met my grandma. I don't know what was happening with the women in my family. Like, right. They just, they kind of keep it, they keep themselves in a box, but your unconscious has a lot of information that you're not aware of. 
So if you just give yourself the opportunity to ask the questions and be curious and sit down with these different materials and channels, you can get the information you need. Yeah. And also I wasn't, hmm, I believe we're revealed information, you know, in the right time. So I'm, this lineage limiting belief really came up in the right moment and the right time. You know, I have this trust with time, obviously, after 10 years. But I do want to know what you have to say about the entire medical complex with fertility. <laughs> Let's go there. Oh, just like, what do, you, what do you have to say about it? Just a little <laughs> brief comment. <laughs> yeah, because I want to know where your brain, I want to know where your brain goes. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing that came to mind before like the flood of all the other things was that (laughs) women are so incredibly, men and women, but in different ways are so incredibly powerful. Like we can co-create whole worlds. And so in the same way that certain substances, certain frameworks and structures are imposed on us to keep us like a little bit limited so that the power doesn't grow too much. I feel the same way about the fertility industry, you know, as a, as an umbrella within the medical industrial complex, that if women are just subscribing to a certain belief system about their bodies and fertility and pregnancy, it keeps us kind of suppressed from like our full capacity, our full potential, right? A woman, like, I mean, what's that saying that's like, um, a woman scorned hath no fury. It's like, what's that, what's the saying? <laughs> and, um, no, the hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? So there's a reason that that saying exists, because when a woman gets amplified enough, she has enough creative energy, enough creative flow and ammunition, like she can obliterate something or she can build something really incredible. Like we are alchemists in that sense. So if a woman is in the belief that she requires a medical system, to help her reach any kind of potential, you know, she's controlled, right? And we need to we need to control, you know, we as a society need to have control over this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so, you know, structured in the way that we are, right? Women, if they started to see the truth about their capacity, they wouldn't be so reliant. And a lot of these companies and systems wouldn't be making money. They wouldn't be siphoning energy off of women. They would, you know what I mean? A lot would crumble if women really (laughs) understood their full potential. Same with men. Same with men. I mean, men are so severely emasculated um, in today's world. And so they're not reaching their full potential. So it's like, imagine being a man today. It's like, you're told that everything you do is misogynistic and it's toxic. And then if you do anything outside of that, you're a pussy and you're weak. So it's like, what... I mean, it's even worse for men. <laughs> like being a man is even harder than being a woman in, in today's world. So yeah, I believe that the medical industrial complex require, and it's not like doctors on the ground level even know this. They're just, um, you know, not to sound disrespectful towards them and their work and all the um, financial <laughs> investment that they've put into their work, but they are really like, cogs in a system that is, I think, much more um, sinister than we really understand. Um, you know, they do, they, they have an oath to, you know, serve and um, really be there and prioritize 
the health of society, but they don't realize that this like Rockefeller medicine system that they're participating in is actually designed to keep us incredibly suppressed and in the closet. There's a time and a place for medical modalities all the time. But if, if women, like 99% of women are utilizing the medical system for birth, you know, that underlying belief is that my body's broken and right. they need to save me. And it's the same with the fertility medical system as well, in my opinion, because, you know, my body is broken and I need to go to them for saving. And yeah. And what ends up happening is like, really, what are, I mean, most women that come to me, they're either like considering starting IVF or they've been on the IVF route and it hasn't worked. Like, when they talk to me about what options were given to them by conventional medicine, um, it's really just like IVF, freezing your eggs, seeing what happens. You know, there isn't like, okay, you know, can we explore your history a little bit more, your psycho-emotional history? Um, you know, how long were you on synthetic birth control? What steps have you taken to cleanse your body? <laughs> you know, right now your hormone, your body is not producing hormones in the way that it should because for so long it kind of went, you know, your your production went into the back seat because you were receiving synthetic hormones. So now we have to rebalance and get your body re-stimulated so that it starts producing these things naturally. Like rarely are these things discussed. And so for a woman, it's like, either don't conceive or go this route and get into financial ruin doing so, you know, uh, maybe your insurance covers some parts of it, maybe you can get a loan, maybe it's like it becomes so complicated and women don't see a way out. So rarely does the conventional route offer, you know, solutions that are more <laughs> not only financially feasible, but also energetically empowering, physically empowering. Um, and I've seen, you know, relationships totally go down the drain when women go down this route because they become obsessed with their victim story around fertility that, you know, you had even mentioned to me previously, you know, that instance of not even able to receive love and support from your partner when you were in this state of victimhood. So yeah, it can really, you know, it can really um, obliterate the existing relationship that a man and woman have, you know, because <laughs> she feels like she's up against a wall. Um, yeah. And there's something about, I just did an interview on this and she said, you're not suffering like I am. Like, well, you need to be mm. suffering more like me. Like, you don't care. How come you're not suffering like me? And it's this, it's, it's deep. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I know. And misery loves company, right? So it's like, how good does it feel like when your friend's also going through some shit too, right? It's like, oh, we're both like feeling hard life is, you know, we're both having problems in our relation. Oh, we both, you know, owe money to the IRS. Oh my God, you know, it's like the injustice. You know, it feels good to, um, to have someone in the, in the same room suffering with you. Because we're we're codependent and we have enmeshment trauma and we want those around us to also feel what we're feeling. Otherwise, we don't know how to relate. <laughs> so it's like so complex. Yeah, I want to talk about the male-female dynamics. Is Do you want to touch on anything else in the fertility realm with that? Because otherwise, I want to go into this statistic I saw on Instagram from the Gottman Institute that... Two to three couples supposedly have a decrease in relationship satisfaction after a baby. 
So not only can the fertility journey really drive apart a man and a woman, you know, or sex, same sex couple, but I, I'm just going to speak to man and a woman because that's my personal fertility experience. So not only can the fertility journey really sever, you know, this sacred bond between a man and a woman, if, you know, if they're not utilizing it for their growth, but a baby, you know, the Gottman's. Institute says two to three couples have a decrease in relationship satisfaction after a baby, but they don't address anything that is actually real or honest, in my opinion, like birth. Right. So what that statistic does immediately is that it compounds the idea that having a baby is somehow another form of bondage, right? Where it's like, if I have a baby now, like I have to sacrifice happiness. I have to live my life to, oh, it's going to cause problems. Oh, see, there's another thing that a baby does. It doesn't actually support the idea of a nuclear family. So out of context, that's a really dangerous statistic to be throwing around, right? Because now people are like, see, another thing a baby does. Oh, my God, why even have kids? And so what they're not talking about, probably what they didn't even explore, is that a lot of relationships were not in a state of radical honesty to begin with. And all that having a baby did was bring the shit to the surface. You know, there's really no other way to put it. And it's not like, oh, the baby adding it to the mix created conflict. There was already conflict to begin with. It just wasn't being addressed. Right. And it's not, it's so interesting because like, Let's look at the concept of couples therapy. It's actually not about going to therapy with your partner to like fix the thing. It's about both people going separately and taking accountability for how they're showing up for the third body, which is the relationship, right? Because often women will be like, oh, we just got to get to therapy because he needs to hear me here and she ne- and we got to change him or I have to change her. And it's like, no. You have a commitment to a third body, which is the marriage, and you have accountability for yourself. You have to be able to look at your partner and say, I take you as you are. If you never changed, I'm here and I take you as you are. What work are you doing to shift yourself to change yourself? And if you go through this transformation and you realize this is no longer a good match, then that's when it's done. But you cannot go in assuming that it's going to get better, that the third body is going to improve when that person changes. And so what happens when a baby shows up to the mix? All of that is revealed. All of the stuff you were ignoring is undeniable because you're kind of brought down to this raw state. You're whittled down to this vulnerable state, especially the woman. The relationship dynamics become really clear when the baby arrives. And you see like, oh, shit, We've been in a pretty depolarized relationship. I was a woman who was super controlling. I couldn't receive. Um, Every time my partner needed a solution, I had the solution because I'm such a good problem solver. It's like as a woman, I just like I get shit done and I know how to solve problems. And so at what point did the man ever have an opportunity to solve a problem for the family, which is what men thrive off of? So instead of being a wife or a girlfriend or a partner, we were just being mommy. We were just being the dark mother who has the solutions, who knows how to fix her little boy's problems, right? So that depolarizes, that causes the man to feel less attracted to the woman. That causes the woman to feel like she's in charge. She's not with a 
quote, real man who's masculine. So they're just so depolarized. And when the baby shows up, it's like, whose role is whose? <laughs> you know, like, you know, women have this idea like, oh, he's going to stay home for the first three months and help me with the baby. He's going to feed the baby at night and I'm going to feed the baby during the day. And it's like, that's not how it works. That's actually not where men thrive when it comes to parenthood. He actually should leave the house <laughs> after day four <laughs> and go back to work doing the things that light him up so that he can show up in the masculine way that you need him to, right? And you have to step up as the woman receiving this experience, throwing yourself into the connection with the baby, right? You have to receive his support. You have to receive his financial support. You have to receive, like, and women just can't receive. So a lot of that comes down to a woman's inability to receive. She's the one who's being penetrating. She's the one who's being controlling, she, you know, and that's not a state to be in that can create a healthy, polarized relationship. So it's a lot there, uh, you know. I'm not, you know, feminism over the decades has really, really messed up relationship dynamics. It's really messed up the healthy, uh, you know, formulation for a nuclear family. Um, it's confused people a lot. Um, it's been misconstrued. And, you know, we're just at a point now where we have to find our way in the dark. That's so good. I do want you to touch on the similar female-male dynamic that can occur in a lot of medicalized traumatic births that then can lead to, you know, decreased relationship satisfaction after a baby, which you talk about on Kelly Brogan's podcast, which everyone should just go and listen to that. But I do want you to say a little tidbit about that, of how a couple can be really severed from a traumatic hospital or not even a hospital experience, but a traumatic birth situation. Right. So there's there are many reasons that a woman would elect to have a, let's just use the hospital, because it's not like unsavory experiences don't happen at home births. But let's just look at the hospital situation um, where a woman doesn't trust her own body. So she has to go to an institution or a system that tells her how her body is supposed to be, how she's supposed to feel, what she's supposed to do. And so in that not trusting her body, she's in a place where she's now parentifying the medical system. She's like, oh, you know, we, we put them in the role of someone who is kind of leading us and, you know, they have the solutions and we want to please them. And obviously she hasn't resolved a lot of the parentification. We shouldn't be parentifying anyone. We shouldn't be doing that with our girlfriends. We should not be doing that with our husbands. We shouldn't be doing that with our kids, anybody, right? So there's obviously something there to be healed. So that inherently in itself tells you that there's going to be dysfunction in the relationship. And I'm not pegging this all on a woman. Men parentify as well, for sure, right? Um, <laughs> but for the sake of this conversation, let's look at that decision to elect a hospital birth. And so what happens is the man doesn't really have a way to understand his role in this process. They haven't often educated themselves on birth. And so she goes to a system to guide her. He's kind of just along for the ride. And then they end up going into a hospital experience where there's multiple strangers touching the woman, um, you know, doing what I consider to be really intimate things with her body, right? Pelvic exams, um, opening her veins to access, you know, 
blood, um, all of these things, um, you know, keeping her half naked on a bed, telling her she can't move, can move. I mean, it becomes really kind of like a, <laughs> a torture chamber, but we've somehow normalized it. And so the man witnessing that is like, oh, I don't actually have a say um, like in this process and what's happening to my wife and my child. And then comes along a male OB who completely like takes control of the woman's body, like to the point where he'll even cut her with an episiotomy and pull the baby out. And, you know, she can't move. She's tied down. She's not tied down. She's on an epidural. She's helpless. And the man can't do anything. And what happens in the woman's consciousness is that she feels violated, even though she's like, I guess I wanted to be here. I'm like safer here. But like, she also feels violated. So it's very confusing for her. She can't make sense of it. And then she starts to resent her husband or her partner who didn't protect her from that. But how could he protect her from that when she was controlling the whole situation to begin with? So it's like, again, women don't want to see, it's hard to see that they actually co-created this violating experience for themselves. But there's, they need to blame someone and unconsciously they start to blame their partner. And when a woman feels like her man shows up for her, he protected her, he was the gatekeeper, it creates a deeper bond between them. But when she feels abandoned, out in the cold and violated, she resents him for not doing his job. So there are definitely um, dynamics that can be worked on even before pregnancy, during the pregnancy to support um, kind of a healthier path and journey for the couple. Um, and then, of course, women say, oh, yeah, it's just because I wasn't feeling it, you know, after after birth, I just didn't want to be intimate. And, you know, I they start to like say, oh, well, you know, he gets to go out. He's, you know, I'm at the house with the baby. And then there's some resentment start to build up because the division of labor doesn't feel equitable um, because they didn't discuss, you know, what everybody wanted to do. You know, so there are so many factors as to why these relationships fall apart after the birth of a baby. Yeah, there is. And a big thing is that simmering resentment. And I feel like in my personal life and what I've seen with people around me, the simmering resentment that starts building and building is because of a loss of respect for the partner. A loss of respect, right. And a lot of women don't respect their husbands. And that's part of the reason that we end up in these situations. But I mean, look at how media and culture is today. What TV show are we experiencing where, you know, the dad isn't like some, you know, alcoholic, uh, someone who doesn't garner any respect from his family, right? Like Homer Simpson, for example, like, let's take him, right? He's an alcoholic, he eats donuts, he goes to the bar, he makes dumb decisions financially for the family. You know, Lisa's the only one who's like got a good head on her shoulders, right? And she's like the one who's always seeing her parents as these dumb dumb. So it's like, even culturally, we're set up to believe that the man is going to fail us. What is that? And then we choose these men that some people call, you know, like your third baby or what do, what do they call it? There's a name for it. I mean, the man you see child. on Instagram, all, a man <laughs> child, right? Like, man child, yeah. The woman, you know, it's all this victimhood, you know, against the man child but but the woman chose him and who's willing yeah who's willing to look at the dynamics of why you wanted to choose you unconsciously you weren't aware you know 
but you chose a man child. And so what dynamics in your childhood led you to that decision? Well, we we choose a man we can control and kind of keep under our thumb because we feel it's way too unsafe to be led by a man. Right? Yeah. And so it's easier to be the controlling dark mother who has this quote beta partner because it's way too unsafe to be led because we don't know what it is to surrender and be led. So it's like we're blaming him, but we chose him because he meets our unconscious needs for control. Thank you for that. Because that is literally the existential kink work my husband and I worked through of me (laughs) being so honest saying, I say I want a masculine man. I say I want you. I We've been working on a polarity for years now. I say I want you in your masculine and I want to be feminine. But but my ego doesn't want that. My ego wants to be the, the, the woman in her masculine with her masculine shield controlling a beta passive man because my ego feels safe controlling him. So there's this huge part of me that does not want change. There is this huge part of me that wants to keep controlling him so that I can feel this illusion of safety. It's not real, yeah. but this control makes me feel safe because it's all, it's the dynamic I've only ever known, right? Until I'm reprogramming that. Right. And so we can say we want a masculine man, but really you would have to lose your control issues, let go of the control issues and actually surrender. And who's willing to do that? Because that is the scariest shit. It really is. It really is. And so much of your identity is like controlling this, controlling that, being this boss babe or whatever, you know, people talk about. And it's conflated, right? So being successful and in your expression and in the aligned work, we conflate that with being alone, in charge, nobody's good enough, I'm a queen, protect my peace, like all the things people say. But it's like, oh, you're actually just like really scared of opening your heart and receiving and surrendering. Yep. You're scared little girl, you know, that hasn't alchemized and the I get pain. It. I know, me too. I'm I'm there, I've been there. That's what I've been working on. And again, it's like, oh, well, if only my man could just do more of this, I'd feel safer. No, no, no. You gotta find all of that in your own body. And once you get in alignment. If it's not working out with that partner, then it's time to, you know, throw in the towel. But I can guarantee for the most part, if you do this work on yourself, securing safety in your own body, learning to surrender, getting into a practice of trusting, his behavior will naturally change and he'll have the opportunity to show up differently for you. And maybe sometimes not. And then you have your answer. Yeah, in my experience, it's not in the timing I want, just like everything else, right? I'm not getting pregnant in the timing I want. My husband's not growing at my same speed in the timing I want, but it's still happening. All of it is still happening. It's still happening. At an evolution that is perfect, in my opinion, and I wouldn't wouldn't change a thing. And I'm so proud of my husband in this. Yep. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about that's really coming up is your masterclass on getting pregnant after 40. Yeah, <laughs> we've been going back and forth because it's like there's this large group of women who enter their 30s who are already considering 
freezing their eggs. They're already considering the IVF route. And then I had this other kind of contingent of women who are already in their 40s being like, is it too late? What can I do? Right. So it's like we have these two groups. And so now it's like getting pregnant in your 30s, getting pregnant after 40. But it's becoming one thing because it's all it's all relevant for any of us, <laughs> any of us as women, actually, even if you're in your 20s, you know, it's like, it's about shifting the consciousness around this discussion. So I would, I would venture to say that even like, you know, as a teenager, as a young girl, we're already hearing stories of like, oh, you know, you, you overhear your mom say like, oh, did you, you know, to her friend, did you hear so-and-so got pregnant? Yeah. Oh my God, she's 42. How is that even possible? Right. So even as a young girl, we're like already hearing that it's supposed to be difficult. So this masterclass is really about understanding what can block fertility, what, what makes fertility more challenging, what can make getting pregnant more challenging, and then looking at the action steps of what we can do within our own power to shift those things before we go to these more extreme routes where we're outsourcing to an institution that is literally designed to make money off of you and it's literally designed to harvest off of your fear. And so that's it's going to be 90 minutes one day and then the next day it's going to be another 90 minutes of live Q&A. So any questions you have, anything you want to discuss, I'm going to be available to have that conversation the second day. So it's a two-part masterclass. And um, we have a wait list right now because we're getting a lot of um, people signing up. And so we're going to see if we have to split it into two separate events. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a big topic because I think a lot of women just have to exhale. And this is an opportunity to get permission to exhale. Because as women, we know. I mean, all of you already know the answers. I'm just here to say, like, you have permission to exhale, you know. And it feels so much better to know that you actually have power over this. Yeah, and we can choose the abundant mindset versus finite scarcity resources of, you know, we have a set amount of eggs and we don't get more. Right. I mean, if we knew that we were still producing more eggs, like the whole fertility industry would start to crumble, you know, and... <laughs> From all the studies that I've been researching since I um, downloaded the idea for this masterclass, there are so many studies over the last five decades where we realize that it's actually not about quality of egg and amount of eggs in a woman. Um, it's actually more to do with her uterus and the state of her body, right? And so as we get older, the uterus becomes deoxygenated because lack of movement, diet, lifestyle choices. And that is actually where implantation is either successful or not. They've taken eggs from more mature specimens, male, uh, mammals, um, you know, that are later in life, you know, according to their species. And then they've put those eggs inside of the womb of a younger mammal and every pregnancy was successful. And so that's where we see, oh, okay, we have this idea that is finite, uh, you know, ovarian egg count, all of this stuff. And so women are like, that's what makes it feel like the clock is ticking. So yeah, your age does impact your, your capacity for, a, for an embryo to form. 
because of the state of health, your mental state, but it's not because of an egg reserve or the quality of the egg. Um, and what we have seen with other mammals is that they're not, they're, they're still producing eggs later in life, less and less eggs, but they're still producing eggs. And it's interesting to note that so many of these studies either get shut down or defunded at a certain point, and then they literally disappear. It's like I've hit so many dead ends. Um, and I wonder why, you know, like, again, if women can see their full potential and capacity, uh, it becomes a little bit dangerous for business. Yep, exactly. You know. Anything else about fertility or your masterclass? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, one of the things we'll be discussing in the masterclass on getting pregnant after 30 and into your 40s is really um, taking an inventory of experiences that you've had in your life, right? Like experiences where a belief system was created about what you could have and couldn't have. Um, and this is actually going to impact all areas of your life, not just fertility. Uh, if we look at the work of Dr. Bruce Lipton, who has shown us over the last few decades uh, that a cell is completely impacted by the environment that it's in, we start to see that our belief system, uh, our hormones, the terrain that exists here within our body actually starts to impact the way that cells form. Um, and so how is it that our belief system can't actually dictate physical manifestations in the body, right? And so this is one of the things we'll be talking about, um, really limiting beliefs. And so like you had said, you know, getting out of the scarcity, I know people are like, okay, like I'm in an abundant mentality. Like, why am I not getting pregnant? It's not that simple. <laughs> it's a multi, we're multifaceted. It's not like I can give you a magic pill that's going to help you get pregnant. It's, it's, it's a combination of so many things. It's a journey, you know, and then, you know, the, the, the baby comes at the time that it's supposed to come. What does that mean? It comes at the time where you're resolved, you feel whole, you've, you've moved through these things and it'll surprise you. And then I always get the response like, well, I know someone who, you know, didn't even want to get pregnant and she eats McDonald's and she smokes cigarettes and okay, fine. Like I can like keep track of all the outliers, you know, I, it, it, sure. You know, how does that story help you? I don't know. But those stories, maybe, maybe the stuff she has to resolve will come up when her child is a toddler or a teenager. I mean, everyone's path for spiritual growth and expansion is happening at a different time. Yeah. And an unexpected pregnancy is not getting what you want. You didn't want to get pregnant. And so it's just the other end of the spectrum of infertility. Yeah, absolutely. So, That's a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, I was not um, consciously planning to get pregnant when I did. And, you know, all of the growth, I had no, I had no challenge. It was right an accident. You know, it's like there was no challenge. My birth was like home birth. Like it all went the way I wanted to. I would do it again 10,000 times. I loved it. Like breastfeeding I breastfed for five years like all the stuff just like I worked really hard it was the hardest work ever but it happened the way that I wanted it to and let's not forget that all of the challenge I mean the points where it's like would it be easier to just throw in the towel and die right those feelings that we get that all came for me much later 
Okay. Like it came for me much, much later um, where I was like faced with things that I hope people never have to face. And so these challenges and, and opportunities for expansion can happen at any point in the journey for a woman. So if her fertility was easy, uh, you know, the birth was easy, don't expect that the challenges don't come later. And it's not about everybody suffering. I'm just saying where we grow comes at different times for everyone. Exactly. That's exactly what I've seen on my 10-year journey is that, you know, I've seen someone have cancer and then have radiation and get pregnant that next year from one time. And yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. But but she also dealt with cancer, which in her experience was a very hard, challenging life experience. And I haven't, you know, personally dealt with that, I don't think. I mean, I think we could all have cancer at different moments in our body, but you know, I, I haven't lived right. through that life challenge. And yeah, miscarriage, not getting pregnant, death, divorce, loss, unplanned pregnancies, these are all different challenges and they're here for our expansion. And that's mm -hmm. that's where we live. Yeah. And, you know, if we're not here for that expansion, then what, what are we doing here? So I think at some point a woman has to reevaluate how she finds meaning in the world. And once she goes on that quest, then she can see more clearly that this is all happening for her and not against her. <laughs>